Escapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library, one game at a time today. We play them briefly, we we play it briefly, we judge it harshly, we rank it, that's pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero, and uh, make way for cat. Yeah, make, make way for for cat um that there's actually no cat in this game actually there's there's no cat in this game there's no cat there's no bill they came later there's no star wolf in this game star wolf is in star fox 2 the unreleased uh sequel that's true which will be the last game we ever cover on this podcast uh but that's not what we're covering today we are covering the original star fox uh march 1993 big game. We're going to devote this whole episode to it. I've got a pretty different relationship with this game than you do, so I think we'll have a couple of interesting perspectives on uh, on, on this one. And since we are just talking about this one today, you know, we're, we're going to have time. Let's talk about our relationships with this game. I'll just start by saying... I did not play this back in the day. I had a friend who had it. He was really into it. The whole sci-fi space shooting thing wasn't really up my alley back then. It just didn't really appeal to me, and I didn't get into Star Fox until Star Fox 64, which really is the only Star Fox game I ever really got into. I think that was the one that, that kind of hit for a lot of people. It seems to be the one that people really want to feel like they're playing again anytime a new Star Fox comes out, and it seems like everybody's always disappointed that it's not sort of evoking the same kind of feelings in them is Star Fox 64. <laughs> but yeah, Star Fox 64, I, I still think is an amazing game that holds up really well. I mean, I, I haven't played it in a while, but I imagine it probably holds up pretty well. This one was difficult for me to get into, and I really wasn't sure if I was going to. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to recommend it at all. But I will say after a few failed attempts at playing this game, period, I finally got the hang of this and I finally really started to enjoy it. And as I kind of made my way through the route one, as they call it, the, the, the kind of easy route of the game, I started seeing the loop and feeling like, OK, this is a game in which you're meant to play it over and over again. There are different ways to go about it. There's three different routes. Each of them only have about, um, I think, five or six levels each. I think they may each have six levels because the, the last level, Venom, is, is actually two levels. It's a short game. You can if, if you're if you're playing through it and making progress, you can beat this in about you know, less than half an hour on each on each route. But yeah, you are meant to kind of, you know, play it again, go for a high score, find some secrets. Uh, there actually are secrets in this game, which is pretty cool. Is Star Fox a roguelike? You know, it's it's not quite a roguelike. I would actually say Star Fox 2 is a roguelike, which is interesting. But uh, this one, you know, it, it is absolutely a thing where you're meant to play it over and over again and kind of exploit the dynamics of how, the, you know, enemies move and the power-ups you can get and stuff to to kind of do better and better. So in that sense, it's got some some connective tissue with what we would what we would consider like the loop of a roguelike now. Even though to be clear, this game uh the levels are are completely authored, they are designed. There's there's not really much in the way of randomness in them, but there are there are a number of different options for kind of like the path you can take. Why don't you talk a little bit about your history with this game cuz you actually played this back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah. So I I 
I'm kind of the opposite of the side of the coin from you with this one, where I was really excited about this game before it came out. Obviously, the kind of technical aspects of it got a lot of coverage in magazines. Uh, I was reading those magazines. I was very excited. I got this game. I played it uh, a lot when it came out, and I was a huge fan of it. So yeah, when I when when Star Fox 64 came out a few years later, it was more just like, oh man, this is like an even more kind of fleshed out version of the thing I already like. And I've attempted to play, I think, pretty much all of the other Star Fox games after this. I didn't play the Wii U one, actually. But I did play, as I talked about on this show a few weeks ago, I did actually do a complete playthrough of the very weird GameCube offshoot Star Fox Adventures just in the last few months. Uh, I have tried to play Star Fox Command, which is the DS game, and uh, and also Star Fox Assault, which is the, the other GameCube game that kind of has like a weird mix of stages that are very much like a classic Star Fox stages, like what you see in this game, and also a bunch of like not really very good third-person shooter, like on-the-ground fox running around with a gun sections. For me, even though as much as I, I do love Star Fox 64, in a lot of ways it all comes back to this game. I love the way it looks, I love the way it sounds especially. I have a, a lot of affection for it, and I do tend to play it relatively regularly like every few years at least i will boot it up and you know just kind of have some you know a fun time kind of running through it it was kind of interesting actually playing it for this show because i played the sort of route one like you did but i also played some of the the other two routes in the game and i realized there was a lot of stuff from them that i did not remember so i think that my memories of this game are pretty centered around that initial version of it that that first sort of like easiest version because there's some very different stuff in some of those other levels um but yeah i i think this game is cool i recognize that there are some technical limitations to it and i was sort of wondering how easy this game would be to get into for someone who did not have the like muscle memory of playing this game when they were like eight years old it'll be interesting to kind of discuss that with you So I, I wanted to ask you something, because I'm kind of curious. So yeah. back in the day, this game didn't really appeal to me because, you know, like I said, I, I wasn't really a, a sci-fi shooter kind of person. I was reading Nintendo Power a lot, obviously, and, and as we've discussed in, you know, our Playing With Power episodes, Star Fox was getting a lot of coverage in Nintendo Power around this time, and nothing was really hitting me. Like, it, it looked kind of interesting, but, like, the anthropomorphic animals weren't really doing it for me, the the... The gritty, almost Star Wars-y aesthetic to it wasn't really doing it for me. So I'm kind of curious, like, what was it that grabbed you about it? Because the other thing for me was that this was a new property, so I didn't have, you know, any connection to it because, you know, nobody would have. It was a, a new property. So what when you were reading those magazines about this, what is it that it kind of hooked you and, and, and made you want to play this? It still wasn't, like, the biggest thing in the world for me, but I did have more of an affection for the kind of space shooter thing. I did like stuff with, like, a sci-fi aesthetic, and I, I thought, you know, the these sort of animal characters looked looked cool enough. That that aspect of it, I didn't really have that much of an, appeal, uh, of an opinion about that until I actually played the game. For me, though, it was really the idea of, like, this is the kind of game that they can only do in arcades right now, and here is a thing 
where it's going to be Nintendo doing it. Nintendo makes great games and it's going to be a thing I can play on my Super Nintendo. And and I think actually the newness of it, the fact that it wasn't connected to a thing I, I already knew, that was appealing to me because it's like, this is a totally new thing and it's going to be amazing. And honestly, to me, it, it really kind of was. Like, I thought that it was just so cool when I finally did get to see it. It, it was, you know, I mean, it looks extremely simple you know today and and you know definitely compared to stuff that like sega was doing in the arcades it it wasn't really up to that level but it was new it was sort of unknown and it was just really cool basically and then actually playing the game playing it again for this show one of the things that really kind of stuck out to me about it that really i think made it work for me and i think this was true back in the day too is how much personality they managed to kind of inject into this thing. You know, the, the in-game graphics are very simple, very basic, unshaded polygons, but it's surrounded by this context of the story and of, like, these characters who you see pop up, you know, the, the idea... Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how the game works, but the idea that you have other characters with you and that you are a specific character that these talking heads keep popping up and talking to really kind of grounds it in something that, that feels makes it feel so much less like a tech demo and more like a proper world, basically. Yeah, I think that if almost any other company but Nintendo had done this, I think this would have been a much more generic sort of space shooter where, you know, your character's name is just... Bob McEveryman or something, yeah, right, and right, you know, you're, yeah. you're just some generic guy flying around space with, you know, three other generic guys. Maybe one of them is a woman. Maybe, yeah, but not 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 necessarily back in those days, but yeah. Well, I mean, I guess none of the actual Star Fox team are women at this point. No. But in any case, you know, like, this could have been a very generic sort of thing, and it wouldn't have mattered because, I mean, literally everything about it, like the, the actual Star Fox, the, you know, Fox McCloud, the main character who is an anthropomorphized fox with all this history who, you know, is not only a mercenary fighting for peace in the galaxy for the planet of Corneria, but also has a personal vendetta against the guy who's waging war against Corneria because his father was also a mercenary who was killed by this guy. All of that is just window dressing. Like, none of that has to be in this game. No, it didn't. But it does make the game, I think, appreciably better to have it there. It just makes everything feel more lived in. There are there are stakes. It's an action movie now. It's not just shooty bang bang sci-fi stuff. There there's a story here. There's a world. There's a narrative. There's lore. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I and I do think that um, that is probably a big reason why Star Fox has endured, despite the fact that you know nothing since Star Fox sixty four has really gotten the acclaim that these first two games did. The the person in the cockpit is an anthropomorphic fox for some reason and 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 i am so glad that it is Definitely. let's start talking a little bit about argonaut we actually talked about argonaut software in the last episode and we were a little bit hard on them based on the interview from uh, King Arthur's World's creator talking about the work environment that he entered into. We're going to walk that back a little bit because I don't want to downplay the importance of Argonaut Software and, and their place in video game history. Uh, they are a very important company. So the company was started by uh, Jez Sands, Jeremy Sands. 
who we talked about briefly in the last episode. And he was like a teenager when he started that company. That's mind blowing to me. Yeah, he's described as a teenage computer genius in his biography on Moby Games. And honestly, that was probably pretty accurate at the time. I don't know exactly how old he was when he founded Argonaut in 1982, but it's probably fair to say he, he was very young. I don't know if he was like technically still like a teenager in the sense of like he was under 18 or if he was, you know, technically an adult. But like, you know, you're, you're still basically a freaking teenager until you're at least 22, I think. Few of us are, are, you know, fully realized adults at the age of 22. (laughs) Uh, Jez and Argonaut's first major release was a game called Starglider for the Atari ST and Amiga, which was an early space shooter that used vector graphics to create the suggestion of 3D shapes. And uh, this is really Jez's claim to fame. He was an early pioneer of creating 3D worlds on early microcomputers. So basically, that game came out in 1986. It was really, really impressive for its time, and Argonaut would go on to make shooters and other games cut from a similar cloth, like Starglider 2 in 1988, Days of Thunder, Birds of Prey, uh, Race, Drive-In. To be fair, I'm not actually sure what their role was in that one, because I I checked Moby Games, and... I, I see Race Drive-In pop up in Argonaut's gameography, but I don't see them actually in the credits for Race Drive-In. Maybe I just missed it. Um, I don't think they handled that really abysmal SNES port. So. No, I don't think they were involved in that. Uh, but another interesting thing about Argonaut is that, you know, from doing this show, we all know that there are a lot of game developers, particularly game developers in the U.K., that could not handle the transition from computer gaming or computer programming in the 80s to programming on consoles in the later 80s or 90s. In like the 16-bit era, usually, yeah. Argonaut, though, obviously was not one of those companies that just kind of withered and died out because of the transition to console gaming. So this is from an article, a 2010 article in Nintendo Life, penned by Damian McFerrin, quote, San approached Nintendo of Japan to propose exploring the possibility of producing 3D titles for their machines. To say Nintendo were receptive to the idea would be something of an understatement. As San himself recalls, they immediately flew me to Japan to meet with them. They hired us to do a few 3D games, starting with the Japan-exclusive Eclipse on Game Boy, which became known simply as X. Then we started doing Star Glider on the NES, which we codenamed Nest Glider. Yeah, so Argonaut's um, relationship with Nintendo didn't just end at software, though. They actually worked closely with Nintendo to develop the Super FX microchip, which allowed games like Star Fox even be possible on the SNES. And to hear Jez say it, the chip was kind of his idea to begin with, and that, that's probably not far from the truth. This is um, Nintendo Life quoting Jez. They jumped at the chance and financed the creation of the Mario chip, Mathematical Argonaut Rotation I.O. chip, which was designed by Rob McCauley and Ben Cheese, who sadly succumbed to cancer in 2001 and was later renamed Super Effects. So, yeah, Jez and a small team of his from Argonaut were basically the masterminds uh, or the architects of the FX chip. Well, and just to talk about the Super FX chip, it's a fascinating idea because there absolutely were other instances of Nintendo and other developers putting like an additional chip into the cartridge to to make a game capable of doing stuff that it wouldn't otherwise be be able to do. But the idea of essentially putting like a tiny graphics chip like a proper chip that could could do the, the the mathematical computations needed to do polygonal 3D graphics. You know, it's a pretty big 
leap. And um, it's it's really cool that they had the idea to do this and that, you know, Nintendo was like, yeah, go do it. This could have been a thing like an extra peripheral that you added onto the Super Nintendo, which given that the Sega 32X would come out a little over a year later and completely flop. It's probably good they didn't decide to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the story of Argonaut leading up to their uh, creation of Star Fox or they're working with Nintendo to create Star Fox. So Jess Sands, his role in this game was mostly hardware based. He was working with the team that made the FX chip. Some other programmers from Argonaut, though, would, would actually be flown to Nintendo to work on the game. And to hear some of them talk about it, though, it doesn't sound like it was maybe the, the best thing in the world. They did get, you know, like frequent meetings with Shigeru Miyamoto, which must have been pretty cool. But they were also kind of isolated from the rest of Nintendo because... Um, it's two people who also worked as contractors for Nintendo at one point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're unclean. You're not worthy of being exposed to the greater Nintendo pantheon. You don't get to work in the chocolate factory with the Oompa Loompas. You're, you're in an annex. Sorry, I didn't mean to call the people that work for Nintendo Oompa Loompas. Um, it, it was just a metaphor. But but yeah, they were, they were apparently, you know, kind of paranoid about sharing these deep company secrets with these, you know, people that had come in from the UK. So they kind of sequestered them, but yeah, they were they were like the main programmers on this game. It's it's the, the slightly strange relationship. Uh, Nintendo would end up straight up stealing a lot of these guys. They uh, poached a lot of Argonaut's talent after Star Fox was made. And, you know, I, I read somewhere from Jez, it sounds like he's not terribly upset about it in hindsight. He, he still thinks that, you know, the deal was good for Argonaut, but it could have gone a lot better if... They could have maintained the relationship with Nintendo rather than just having Nintendo poach a lot of their top talent for themselves and just work on all these games completely internally going forward. Maybe not a terribly cool thing to do, but hey, that's capitalism. Oh, that's <laughs> that's our shit on capitalism for today. But yeah, those programmers that came over, they're actually people with meaningful legacies in, in video games. Dylan Cuthbert was one of them, and he is still a game developer. He, uh, I believe, founded, is it Q Games or Q? Q Entertainment. I can never keep those two straight. Uh, I think it's Q Games. Q Games. Um, who who did uh, a lot of the, uh, the the who did the the pixel junk games in the last decade? That was that was sort of their thing. And he's still you know a pretty pretty prominent person, uh, especially as like a Western game developer who has been living and working in Japan since the nineties. Um, and there's also Giles Goddard, who was um, pretty instrumental in some other fairly meaningful Nintendo things. He he designed and programmed the the Marvel Mario face from the Super Mario 64 title screen, uh, which is a, a thing that I'm sure everybody who played that game remembers, very detailed Mario face that you could kind of mess with and, you know, pull on his ears and his nose and stuff. Uh, and he also worked on the 1080 snowboarding uh, series and Steel Diver uh, for, for Nintendo. Yeah, good old Steel Diver. Um <laughs> No, but yeah, some really impressive credits to his resume. And also, uh, interestingly enough, uh, aside from doing some programming and engineering on 1080 snowboarding, he's also credited with uh, having done voice samples for that game. And it made me wonder, 
Could it be his voice that we're hearing in a lot of the voice samples in Star Fox? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, there are actually a, a pretty noticeable number of, of voice samples in this game, uh, which is interesting because the uh, the actual characters in this game speak in this kind of weird sort of babbly, like... I love it. But yeah, in the background, you can hear, you know, this this very clear English language voice, uh, you know, especially at the beginning of the first stage um, when the, the ships are flying out of the hangar. Yeah, I mean, you've got the yeah, you got the emergency. You've got some voice lines for a few power ups. You've got General Pepper's good luck. All, one of my all time favorite voice samples in a game. You also have a uh, Fox's let's go when uh, when you. Because I would bet that that's all the same voice. It probably is. I can't imagine that they had multiple people record lines for that. Yeah, I wonder who, because I don't think that Star Fox has a accredited voice actor. Sound effects just by Koji Kondo, who I'm almost sure that's not his voice. And there's a third programmer who also worked on the game, uh... Christer Wombell, who I regret to say I don't have any information about. Do you? Uh, no, neither does Moby Games. Their only credit seems to be Star Fox. So maybe they just did Star Fox and left the industry. I mean, if you're only going to make one game, this ain't a bad one. No, it's true. It's true. This is a good single credit from this industry. So, yeah, this was directed by Shigeru Miyamoto. So it was it was actually um, it was produced by Shigeru Miyamoto. It was directed by uh, Katsuya Iguchi. Yes, you're right. And, and that's a good point, actually. Uh, and Iguchi, I believe, would continue to be more involved with the Star Fox series going forward, right? Uh, I believe so. Uh, he definitely is still involved in Nintendo and has uh, is, is credited as a general producer in Animal Crossing New Horizons. So... Um, yeah, so been there for a long time and it, from what it looks like is still there and is still uh, uh, typically has a lot of manager support credits and a lot of big Nintendo titles. He also directed Wave Race 64. He directed Star Fox 2 and yeah, general producer, producer and in, in some cases designer on a, on a bunch of games. So yeah, they really put some top level Nintendo talent on this, even though uh, we'll, we'll get into talking about some of this game's technical limitations, which um, it certainly does have. There's a lot of just like kind of thoughtfulness to, to the design as well. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the game and I have a couple other bits of info about sort of some of the thinking that went into sort of the overall the overall design of some of this that uh that i'll bring up you know kind of as we do that but yeah let's let's talk about the game itself uh which is a behind the back scrolling on rails shooter uh that is is uh leveraging the super fx chip to create these these entirely polygon based 3d levels this game features three different routes in which you can take to get from corn area to venom which is the evil planet with the evil monkey king andros who wants to take over the solar system or something you as fox mcleod have to start from corneria along with your three wingmen who are peppy hare a rabbit falco lombardi a falcon and slippy toad who is of course a dragon your team, who is uh, called Star Fox, go and uh, save the city of Corneria by destroying some baddies and then take off into outer space in their R-wings 
to um, make their way towards Venom and take out Andros where he concocts his evil schemes. The routes in this game are rigid, unlike the routes in the Nintendo 64 game, in which case you would kind of splinter off uh, from different planets depending on what you did in certain levels. But here, you're pretty much on a rail, regardless of which path you take. Each path has its own unique levels. Not a bad way to go about this. I th- I th- it's, it's a pretty short game. It's obviously meant to be replayed, and this is where we sort of talked about the roguelike-ishness of the sort of loop of this game. You know, you you play it a little bit. If you're like me, you're probably going to die a lot on the first level. You play it again, you get a little bit better until you're finally a good chunk of the way through the five or six levels of Route 1. And then you finally beat Route 1 and then you say, okay, time to go on to Route 2, I guess, which is going to be just a little bit more difficult. I think it's a really cool way of doing game design. Instead of just saying, you know, like, hey, I'm going to present you with 12 levels and each one's going to get harder and harder. I'm just going to present you with five levels and you've played the complete game in five levels. But if you want to play something a little more challenging, there's another five levels you can play up here, which is going to take you through the same game, more or less the same story, but it's going to be a much different experience this time. I like this idea. There is a little bit of reuse. I think that for Roots 1 and 2, Corneria is essentially the same level, and the boss of the second level is the same for Roots 1 and 2. But other than that, these are pretty much completely different. Even Route 3, Corneria is a totally different level with a new boss. All different bosses, different... There, there's some cool uh, gimmicks to the different levels. There's one that uh, goes from being over land to uh, going um, over water and having things like sort of leap out at you uh, from the water. There's a level that, that I, I'm really glad, honestly, is in Route 1 because it's the one that most people will be playing first, that is uh, you fi- you're you're finding your way through a big space armada, and it's really part of where the game like really likes to kind of expresses a lot of the Star Wars vibes that it is it is uh, you know are, are kind of actually a big part of this game where you're fighting these big ships. You can see them the the the, the end of the level. You see this one really big ship in the distance that kind of slowly gets larger and larger as you get closer to it, and you go inside it and fight its core and fly out. There's there's a lot of variety here, and it's really cool. And actually, there there is a little bit of that changing the route based on what you do in the level that uh, that Star Fox sixty four would be sort of entirely built around. There's a way to jump to jump from Route one to Route two by uh, going through um, a secret level called the Black Hole Zone. Uh, I think it's called the Black Hole Zone that that li- ends up uh, putting you out in uh, towards the end of Route Two by by starting in Route One. There's some cool stuff here that is is like if you dig beneath the surface, there's there's some neat secrets to find, including a secret ending which I have seen on YouTube and I think is really fascinating. I am going to spoil it here. I mean, look, guys, it's been decades. Come on, there is a secret level called Out of This World, which uh, I, I think you have to access from Route Three. I can't remember how you get there, but if you do something in a certain level in Route 3, you will warp to the zone called Out of This World, 
or, or out of the galaxy, something like that. It's it's I think it's out of this world. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's weird. It's real weird. The implication being apparently that General Pepper can no longer reach you. He doesn't know where the Star Fox team is. And they are flying through this very strange level where everything's kind of wavy and there's all these planetoids in the background with creepy faces and you're fighting like, I think, paper cranes and then eventually a slot machine. You beat the slot machine by getting all sevens or whatever. And then the game just says the end and you're just kind of there in space for all eternity, I guess. The Star Fox team is just lost in space now, never to return. And I guess uh, Andros takes over the galaxy. It's actually pretty grim, really, if you think about it. It, it is pretty grim, yeah. Um, that that ending also has a fun thing where you stay in control of the ship while the credits play. And then when the the end shows up at the end, you can like shoot the, the letters and, and make them sort of tumble around and stuff. So it's, it's weird and cool and a little unnerving, really. I almost wonder if this whole thing with like the, the credits that you can sort of interact with was maybe a jumping off point for the Smash series later on where you can do that in almost all of them. Yeah, I definitely had that thought too. It's so much more sort of like playful than something with like the tone of this game you would expect to have. And it's, it's cool. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of neat, even though the graphics are very simple, they do a lot of neat stuff with, um, you know, there's, there's this one level where there's a bunch of like, essentially just like space manta rays that actually look really kind of striking, um, that, you know, uh, you know, I think they do a good job of, of breathing some life into these very simple, uh, these very simple graphics in, in a lot of cases. It's a really neat game that I think goes uh, pretty far beyond just being like a tech demo because of the amount of creativity that was put into it. It is a really impressive game when you think about it in terms of 1993 on a home console, 16-bit console. It's a graphical style that I, I definitely think might turn some, a, a, you know, a good number of people off today who don't have any nostalgia for it. But I also think it kind of holds up. You know, you can make out shapes, you can see what they were going for clearly, you know, and, and almost everything is a polygon, really, with the exception of just like some of the background elements. Everything is a polygon. Everything is actually there existing in the space with you. It's all really impressive. And it, it, it still is kind of impressive to look at today. So, you know, a few things that I wasn't crazy about with this one was that I do think it can be really difficult to parse where you are in relation to some of the objects, just given, you know, the, the sort of the cameras behind you. When you look at everything from, at a distance, it's not always clear how they're going to be oriented by the time you are actually like, you know, among those objects, uh, if that makes any sense. I, I had a, a couple times where I see, you know, like a pair of arches and it's like, OK, well, there's an item in the middle of those arches, but I'm just not even going to mess with those because I am not confident enough in my piloting skills. I'm going to fly over them. And then as I get closer, I realize, oh, the game is forcing me under it. So as I'm trying to, like, go up and over, I, I realize too late. Oh, I don't have a choice. I have to go under this thing, even though, you know, from a distance, it looks like I'm going to have plenty of room. 
And so now I've got to very quickly dive down and try and get under it, but I'm, I'm probably just going to take damage. You know, there's definitely some issues there where once you realize that that's that, that you need to make some kind of an adjustment like that, the game can be a little bit laggy feeling in places just because the frame rate is not super high. And sometimes it's there's just not really enough time to to correct from from having sort of not been able to judge judge like your relationship in in space to something else. So um something else I I'm curious about um as far as you know your playing of this game back in the day. Did you have up and down inversed? Um you know, I think I did. I think that is actually what I what because the game does give you options for whether or not you want to invert the controls. Well, it, it lets you invert up and down, but I think right and left are always right and left. Playing the game now, I kind of like just playing it with like the default setting. Yeah, which is the with with the Y axis inverted. Yeah, so I think that I must have still been doing that back in the day as well. You know, what's kind of funny. So I don't remember if that's the way it worked on the Nintendo sixty four. I would have to go back and check. And uh, you know, I I tried a couple of times to get through the first level, just absolutely could not do it. And then I thought maybe it's because I need to invert the Y axis or, or not have the Y axis inverted. So I, I tried, I think, um, control scheme C. So A and B basically have the Y-axis inverted, um, and A has the, the button layout, you know, is in a default layout, and B has it kind of changed up a little bit. Um, and then C and D have those same two layouts, but with the Y-axis non-inverted. So I tried um, control scheme C, and it, I just could not get it. So I, I figured, OK, maybe the Nintendo 64 version did have the inverted axis and, and I just am not remembering it. So I went back to it. And that was at the point where I finally it, it finally started clicking for me. I actually made, started making some progress and was kind of getting hooked on it a little bit and was able to like say like, OK, let's you know, after I died, like, let's jump back into this. Let's try again. And instead of just being like, well, I died. I'm, I feel like I'm done with this now. You know, there, there's definitely some things about this game that I, I, you know, even even for somebody who is a fan of it and who is going back to it now, like when I look at it, I'm like, you know, it's kind of strange that there's no like aiming reticule for the ship uh, when you're when you're not in like the cockpit view. I, I do want to say really fast that cockpit view is pretty cool. And I was honestly kind of impressed with how well it did. I mean, as you said, this game does run at a pretty low frame rate, but it felt like it was staying pretty consistent, even in first person view. And I thought that was really impressive. But yeah, unfortunately, the first person view is relegated only to the space levels. Yeah. Which is which is about half of the game, basically. If, if the game has to have a texture for ground, um, sort of, which I'm guessing is hard coded into like the skybox. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Um, at that point, they don't allow you to do a first person because I don't think they were able to like redraw the ground or whatever, you know, constantly in a first person view. Which I'm guessing that must be why you can't do that and yeah when you can't do the first person view you don't get an aiming reticle and it's really really difficult to 
especially at first, to determine where your shots are going to go. It takes a lot of practice to get that down. I think it's a thing you get used to eventually, but it's weird that they just didn't do that. So you have your regular laser, which can be upgraded to like a dual laser by getting a power up. But you also have a a set of, of bombs that are a consumable item that are just like a screen clearing attack. And there are definitely places in this game where I just went like, okay, I cannot possibly hit all of these enemies on the screen. I'm just going to use a bomb and get rid of them. That doesn't feel great, you know? Like, it feels like the bomb should be usable in more kind of tactical circumstances instead of just, I literally can't see all of these enemies against the background. Something I really hated in the first level where I finally got to the boss, you know, like the little boss... Um, health bar appears on screen. I'm like, oh, finally, I made it to the boss. Then the boss comes from behind me, hits me, and then I die. <laughs> oh, like, that God. sucks. That's, that's, yeah. I was so frustrated because I had no warning. And this is something I remember from the Nintendo 64 game where one of your wingmen. Yeah, right, because it's the same boss, right? And they're just like, he's coming, get down. Yes, yeah. Uh, one of your wingmen, or maybe Fox himself, I can't remember, like come on the intercom and say, uh, enemy approaching from behind, lower your altitude, you know, so like like to warn you that this is happening, but there's nothing like that here. Little frustrations like that also kind of made it difficult for me to get into the game as, as fast as maybe I would have otherwise. But ultimately, you know, because it is a short game, you're going to get some cheap deaths in there. You're going to live and learn. You're going to be able to get back into it. You'll be able to get back up there, you know, probably pretty quickly. So it's not the end of the world, but it is kind of frustrating. There's some definite rough edges on this. There's some interesting sort of design quirks, like uh, the fact that you can get like your your wings uh, sort of blown off by hitting pieces of geometry, basically, which if you have the dual laser will bring you down to just the single laser again. That is a thing that I like, but is also can also become infuriating when you're not able to really adequately get out of the way. So you lose that wing and you lose your like firing ability because of it. Like I said, I I think there's some rough edges here that come from probably a combination of this being the very first 3D game that a lot of these Nintendo folks for this had worked on, and also just this being a, a pretty limited sort of hardware that they're using to to do a pretty ambitious game with, really. That's I, I think that's definitely true, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to get past some of that and and sort of see some of the cool stuff this game has. I don't know if we've talked too much about sound. I know we've talked about uh, some of the character voices. We haven't talked about the music, though. Um, which is really good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very impressive soundtrack. You've probably been listening to some of it through some of these interstitials here in the show. But yeah, um, really great sound design overall. You know, the voice samples come in through pretty clear. I think the sound effects are very good with the exception of the laser. Again, that laser is a real sticking point for me. But Oh, the laser, the laser is kind of scratchy sounding, isn't it? The laser just sounds very slight, but... Other than that, I think the sound design is very good. Um, and yeah, the music is uh, really great. Definitely one of the, the better soundtracks on the Super Nintendo. I was always kind of disappointed that they gave Star Fox a different sort of like 
soundtrack identity, starting with Star Fox 64, and that that was sort of what persisted after that. Uh, just because I like that music, but I do not like it as much as this. And I don't like it as much as this for this series, personally. Like, I feel like this has a cool, like, almost, like, sort of, like, Top Gun, like, 80s, like, action movie vibe to it, to some extent. It's, like, it's it's a really fun combination of rock, pop music soundtrack, uh, and, like, a uh, like a kind of, like, John williams like, Star Wars soundtrack. It's a neat fusion of those. I think they could have at least kept some of that, along with, you know, some of the Star Fox 64 music, because I, I did like the soundtrack to Star Fox 64. No, me too. I think it's good, but I just don't like it as much as this. It's, it's a shame that they kind of lost the musical identity that this game specifically had. There definitely would have been a place for that kind of music in Star Fox 64 without giving up too much of what they put into it. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you there. All of your wingmen would actually get proper voice acting, along with all the enemies uh, in Star Fox 64. Here, we just get little chirps that I, I do enjoy as much as i i like some of the the great bad voice acting from star fox 64 everybody loves do a barrel roll do a barrel roll my, my emperor i have failed you is another great classic one um my emperor <laughs> i failed you a base explodes and presumably fox's friend is killed in the explosion and fox's reaction is Dang. <laughs> <laughs> this is an this is an aside to an aside at this point. Okay, you go for it. Those voices are are funny and bad in in a great way. But um man, like playing through Star Fox Adventures, which does not have those voice actors. It has like British voice actor talent from Rare trying to do impressions of the characters from Star Fox 64, and it's rough. Like, it's really rough. Oh, that's a shame. That's <laughs> yeah. a real shame. But, uh, but yeah, so anyway, going back to Star Fox on the SNES, I really do like the little chirps from everybody when they come up on the intercom. I sometimes don't have a chance to really read what they're saying because things are exploding in my face. You know, I, I like that they're trying to really give these characters personality early on. Um, but yeah, it's, I, you know, Falco's... Uh, That's my favorite one, is the Falco one. They get a lot of the personalities down. I, I think that maybe the character that changes the most between this game and Star Fox 64 might be Slippy, because Slippy is sort of portrayed as a bit of a coward in this game. Star Fox 64, he sort of comes off more as like, he's the technical genius, but he's not a terribly great pilot, and maybe he is kind of self-conscious about that. Yeah, he gets in trouble because of that, yeah. Yeah, he goes headlong into situations that he is not prepared for because he wants to prove himself and ends up in trouble a lot because of that. But I definitely don't get coward from him in Star Fox 64, and that's actually maybe a character trait that I'm glad they they rewrote. Yeah, me, me too. I like the Star Fox 64 version of, of him better. One thing that I do want to say is that um, when I played this game as a kid, me and um, my cousin, who I... I played a lot of this game with we hated falco because falco does not thank you for saving him he's like i could have taken care of that on my own <laughs> uh or like mind your own business fox it's like come on man we saved you like you were getting shot by three triangles with another triangle in the middle of them and we shot it down and saved you does the game get noticeably more difficult without 
your wingmen with you? I don't think so. I didn't lose the wingmen very much. They when you lose the wingmen in this game, when they get shot down and you you don't you, when they get shot at and you don't save them, they're just gone for the rest of the game. And they do show up to like kind of take down uh, additional enemies, so you don't have as many to deal with if they're around. But the main like mechanical thing they do is add to your score at the end of the level, which can lead to you getting more continues and extra lives if they if they stay healthy. I, I don't know that the game gets considerably more difficult, but they do help a little bit. Yeah, that's the one thing that, you know, I, I wasn't crazy about with the wingmen is just how inconsequential they sort of felt. In Star Fox 64, they serve pretty specific purposes. Like if you have a wingman, a specific wingman alive at a certain point, then you might have more options available to you as to, you know, like how you progress through a level, or you might not be able to get to a certain level without a certain wingman available. I mean, Star Fox 64, they took a lot of the good ideas from this and they expanded on them in really cool ways. And that's absolutely one of them. Like the first level in Star Fox 64, the only way you can get to the secret second boss that leads you to the harder route is by following Falco, right? Yes, and there's a very specific point in that level where you can lose Falco if you don't rescue him. That level has very specific flags where, okay, you have to shoot down this enemy in particular before they shoot down Falco, and then you have to do this other, you know, maneuver, and then Falco will lead you to the other, you know, part of the level, And at, at which point, yeah, you can kind of go into the more difficult branches of the game. I, I, I kind of wonder if, like, where the thought process was where, like, if they thought they could do more with them here and then they had to scale it back, or if, and then they were able to, like, do more with it in, in the, you know, in 64, or whether or not it was just like, you know, there's more stuff we could have done with those. Let's think about what that could be. I, I'm so glad that they're there, because I do like the sort of world building they inject into everything, and this game would feel a lot more barren without them. You can definitely see, like in Star Fox 2, where you can actually select which pilots you you want to play as. You know, some maybe grander ideas that they had for this expanded cast of characters that are mostly relegated to the background in this first game. Yeah, Star Fox 2 actually introduced two new pilots, I believe, that um, were both women. Those ones never ended up coming back, which is odd. Yeah, it is a shame. I think it would have been interesting to see like what they might have done with an even more expanded cast in uh, Star Fox 64. We got Bill and Cat. Bill and Cat's excellent adventure. You know what? Those characters had a pretty bad time. Honestly, that was more of a bogus journey than than anything else, I think. But, <laughs> you know, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they would eventually add a woman to the cast uh, with Crystal. Yeah. Yeah. She would actually end up being a member of Star Fox, right? The end of that game has her joining the Star Fox team. Gotta say that game's treatment of Crystal. Not great. <laughs> really? A video game from the mid 2000s or early 2000s didn't treat a, a female character well? I know. It's shocking. It's, it's really shocking. She's better in Star Fox Assault. But yeah, so, you know, uh, Star Fox is a series that Nintendo does still go back to. It's, it's you know, not nearly as frequent a well to be drawn from as, say, a Mario or a Zelda, but it's, it's certainly... Um one of the big tent poles for Nintendo. It's it's kind of amazing that this big tent pole, you know, mostly came about because of a company from the UK. Fox McCloud has made an appearance in every single Smash Brothers game up to this point. Uh, Falco has been in all of them except for the first one. 
Um, Wolf from the Star Wolf team has been in a lot of them. There's always like multiple Star Fox levels in those games. Nintendo definitely still enjoys reminding people that Star Fox is a thing that exists. It's not uh, Star Tropics. No, which which shall never be mentioned again, I think, by Nintendo. Sadly, you're, you're not wrong. You never know. Nintendo did just a few weeks ago actually buy the Canadian studio that makes the like Luigi's Mansion games for them. And, and they also made the very good Wii Punch-Out game. So, uh, you know, maybe Star Tropics could be the next one from them. You never know. I mean, Nintendo likes to throw people for a loop sometimes. I mean, I don't think anybody ever expected that Star Fox 2 would be released in any kind of official capacity. <laughs> no, definitely not Dylan Cuthbert, who was very surprised and, and pleased when uh, when when it got announced as part of the the Nintendo Super NES mini lineup. Yeah, the, the guy who practically made the game it was amazed that the company was finally releasing it decades after the fact. You know, and, and that is kind of an interesting story, too, but that is one that we will probably have to save for the Star Fox 2 episode uh, years and years and years down the line. I don't know. Is there anything else we need to talk about uh, with Star Fox before we start ranking this one? I am going to say briefly that the the inspiration for why they have all these specific types of animals in this game is pretty interesting and ties into some stuff about Miyamoto being inspired by the gates of a very famous shrine that is close to, to the Nintendo offices and, and the idea of flying through these many, many shrine gates. And the shrine is, it's, it's like a prosperity shrine that is also very connected to the idea of foxes as as sort of like um you know an animal that's that's very heavily associated with with the the kami that is also the prosperity kami and there's there's a bunch of interesting stuff about that um i'm not going to talk too much about it here but i do think that is a really interesting insight into kind of uh miyamoto's sort of like free association inspirations for things sometimes and yeah that, that you should go read about that because it's uh it's cool and uh it's it provides an interesting extra dimension to to this thing one of the nice things about being a tentpole series for a company like Nintendo is that there is a lot of documentation out there about how this game came to be. Um, so yeah, there's no shortage of things. If you just look on Wikipedia, there is a huge citation section uh, full of interviews from people who worked on the game. I believe there's even something on Netflix about it. Did I see that? Oh yeah, there's a series uh, of about classic games on on Netflix that does does talk about this. I believe. Oh, here we go. Okay, in the Netflix documentary High Score, Dylan Cuthbert and Giles Goddard discuss how when they moved to Kyoto to work in the Nintendo office, they were put in a room remotely located from the rest of Nintendo because the two of them were not full time Nintendo employees. So I, I guess they, they talk a lot about that and, and probably a lot of other things. Hopefully some good things as well. <laughs> Hopefully some good things. Yeah. So I guess there's only really one thing left to do at this point, which is to go to the list and try to figure out where we want to put this one. I am looking near the top of the list for this one. Yeah, same here. Yeah. My thinking is that the absolute floor for this is F-Zero at number 22. Okay. Uh, F-Zero feels like it was a tech demo for the Super Nintendo that doesn't leave a lot of reason to go back to it, uh, given 
other things that came out on the system after it. Star Fox is still kind of a unique experience. It could also be seen as maybe a tech demo for the Super FX chip, but... I think it's a more fleshed out game than than that, though. Yeah, that's a solid point of, of contrast between these. I think it's better than Super Off-Road at 21. Super Off-Road is very fun, but I, I don't think it's it, it measures up to this. I think I would go back to Star Fox before I would go back to Darius Twin at number 20. I think I would go back to this before I went back to the Magical Quest starring Mickey Mouse at number 19. Yes, uh, I agree with that. Um, so, I mean, we've got, you know, I mean, we've actually got like a chunk of licensed platform games here that are like surprisingly good. We've got Hook, Tiny Toons and Mickey Mouse at 17 through 19. Um, do you think this is better than all of these or do you think that maybe it goes somewhere in there? So that's a good question. Um, I think it is probably better than Tiny Toons and the Magical Quest starring Mickey Mouse. I'm a little bit less sure about Hook, um, just because I think Hook is um, just a really, a really good, really like fleshed out game. Because I'm also seeing like Blazion, the Bio Cyborg Challenge, above that at number sixteen, and. I think I would go to this one before I would go to Blazion. Yeah, I agree with that. It's it's tricky. Um, I You know, I'm trying to figure out where I think the ceiling for Star Fox is. And I think the ceiling is probably somewhere in the range from like 10 to 14. Like, I, I think that it's somewhere in there, you know? I'm going to say I think the ceiling might be Super Mario Kart at 13. Yeah, I can go with that. I can go with that. I don't think I could reasonably put it higher than that. I think maybe this just goes right below Super Mario Kart. I don't think I would go back to Contra 3 before this one, to be honest with you. I I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, my own experience certainly bears that out. Um, so yeah, I'd be comfortable with that. I'd be comfortable with putting this as our new number 14 right below Super Mario Kart. All right, then let's do it. All right, so congratulations, Star Fox, our new number 14, and now, um, very definitively, the highest-ranked game of 1993. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I feel good about that, and um, man, uh, that that is uh, the only game we have to rank today. That's the only one, and uh, so I guess... Uh, we decided we're not going to do a serious segment today. Um, yeah, all the stuff happened uh, a few weeks ago. Uh-huh. I feel like we're far enough removed about it that we don't really have anything to say about it that hasn't already been said a million times by smarter people. And um, we're just hoping that we get to the inauguration without anything else awful happening. By the time you're listening to this, the inauguration has already happened. I, I wouldn't mind it if Trump gets impeached regardless. I mean, you know, even though he's going to be... Yeah, that would be great. That would be really good, yeah. I would enjoy seeing people suffer consequences to their actions for once, but you know, we'll, we'll see if that happens. In any case, that's our serious segment for today, I guess. <laughs> Brief one, I'm not even going to bother putting in the little blurb, because honestly, like, it's, we didn't... if you don't agree with that much, at least, then... What are you doing here? Yeah, please, you can stop <laughs> listening to the show if you don't agree with that. Um, um, so what do we have for next time? That is a good question, because uh, we were originally thinking about trying to do some of the uh, relitigating from our holiday special in this episode. But I think 
I think we're going to try and do some of that in the next episode. And maybe we're just going to do that. We are going to start doing biweekly uh, from here on out instead of every week, just because I, you know, now that I do have a job and a lot of other projects going on, I do need to have some time to, I need to be able to set aside a block of time every week to work on this podcast. And it just, it's just easier for me to think, okay, one week I'm going to edit and another week I'm going to research and play the games. You know, so it, it's just easier for me. Um, but it does probably mean we might be able to start going back to three games at a time. We'll see how that goes. So look forward to that next time uh, when we will be talking about some games we've already played and kind of thinking about whether or not we think the placement in the rankings holds up. So, yeah, uh, we we will see you next time for that. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm excited to, to, to look at some of those games again. I'm curious after how much, how many games we've played since some of those, how, how, how we, we, you know, how they strike us. So, yeah. Yeah. I know that we're already starting to have a little bit of buyer's remorse for some of the games that are, you know, maybe ranked a little bit higher than we think they should be now. But we'll, we'll see what happens in, in the next episode when we start relitigating some stuff. Well, uh, so folks, until next time, I'm Emmy Zero. I'm Steampunk Link. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. When they go back to Star Fox, as they probably inevitably will at some point, I would really like to see, just like, aesthetically than to go back to this game instead of Star Fox 64 and and have something that looks like really clean, really like sharp version of this with like the really simple, you know, geometric shapes. I want them to do a Star Fox in which there is one level where this sort of graphical style happens. Like they go into something and the the computer produces holograms that look like this. Oh, that would be cool. That would be cool. That would be very cool. Come in, Cornelia. This is Cornelia, Pepper speaking. Congratulations on a job well done. Roger, I'm heading back to Cornelia.